0: Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has incredible podcasts like My First Million. My First Million is hosted by Sam Parr and Sean Purry. They feature famous guests. They discuss how companies made their first million and then some. They brainstorm new business ideas based on the hottest trends and opportunities in the marketplace. Here are some of the topics we to talk about. If you like any of these, you will love the show. Three profitable business ideas that you should start in 2022. Drunk business ideas that could make you millions. Asking the founder of Grammarly how he built a $13 billion company or SaaS companies that anybody can start. If these topics are up your alley, go check out My First Million. Listen to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today, my guest is Salim Ismail. He is a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, author, speaker, and technology strategist. He is the founding executive director of Singularity University and lead author of Exponential Organizations. In March 2017, he was named to the board of the XPRIZE Foundation. He has been building disruptive digital companies as a serial entrepreneur since the early 2000s. As a prolific speaker, Salim gives more than 150 talks per year to audiences of all sizes around the world. He has been profiled across a vast array of media outlets, including the New York Times, Bloomberg, Businessweek, Fortune, Forbes, Wired, Vogue, and the BBC. He is a sought-after strategist and a renowned technology entrepreneur who built and sold his company to Google. So today we're going to speak about all the things that Salim speaks on and teaches. We're going to speak about the keys to disruption and innovation. We're going to see why some of the largest organizations have trouble keeping up with some of the most smallest agile organizations and why small disruptive organizations always seem to win. We're going to speak about the immune response to evolution and disruption in organizations, how the world deals with multiple Gutenberg moments at the same time. We're also going to speak about how Selim plans to break and fix the world. We're going to speak about exponential thinking, uh, disrupting government and the future of civilization and governance so an incredible episode hope you enjoy this is salim ismail He is a serial entrepreneur angel investor author speaker and technology strategist
1: so uh first of all great to be here uh i'm originally from india um ended up in canada when i was 10 years old uh, my dad hated noise dirt pollution and corruption so india's not so great for that um did schooling in university there. I went to Waterloo, the big tech university, and I went to Europe from there for 10 years, doing five years of systems architecture, building large scale systems, and then five years of management consulting. And uh, uh, couldn't start a business in Europe, so I came to New York City and built a the predecessor to Twitter, uh, unfortunately 18 months too early, uh, very bad to be early in the tech space, better to be late. Um, uh when you're early, you just teach teach the marketplace how to do it. And then somebody else comes along and rolls you over. Um uh, but it got me well known, ended up on the West Coast as the head of innovation at Yahoo and and kind of hit across the fundamental problem that is driving a lot of my thinking now, which is when you try anything disruptive in a legacy organization, the immune system attacks you because all of our organizations are built to resist change and withstand risk. And yet that's the harder bit, right? Uh, and I'd set up a relationship between Yahoo and NASA to do some interesting projects together. And one day the NASA people invited me to the founding conference of Singularity University where they brought 70 thought leaders around the Bay Area and said, is it worth creating an educational institution uh, only focused on accelerating technologies? Um, I somehow had never met or come across Ray Kurzweil or uh, uh, Peter Diamandis or the Prize or even the Singularity. Um, And so I was kind of blown away. I asked a lot of questions. About two weeks later, Peter says, do you want to run it? Um, I remember getting off the phone. My wife goes, how was your phone call? And I'm like, I'm a dean. Uh, I don't know how that happened. Uh, In-laws are permanently confused. Um, And seven years of building on singularity, I think, was incredibly seminal. Um, Probably my secret superpower is that if there's a lecture, lab, workshop, discussion on blockchain or autonomous cars or CRISPR or drones or or neuroscience breakthroughs, I've heard each one like 60 times. Mm-hmm. So as my wife says, I can pretend to speak about anything at this point. Um, and that gave me an insight that we have 20 Gutenberg moments hitting us at the same time. The, f- the printing press in the 15th century fundamentally changed the world. Well, solar energy fundamentally changed the world. And then you have blockchain that totally changed the world. AI completely changes the world. In general, we've had these kinds of breakthroughs once every few decades, And we have, I think we have 20 of them hitting us all at the same time. And this is blowing our industries and blowing up our institutions globally. And I'm probably most focused on the structural change happening in society because of the massive tidal wave of these technology breakthroughs hitting us at the same time. Um, And uh, I wrote the book on the back of that, basically saying we need to organize in a completely new way. And we noticed that uh, over the last 10 years, a completely new breed of organization was emerging where they'd learned how to scale the org structure as fast as you could scale technology. Um, we've learned how to scale technology very well. Zero to a million users, Amazon Cloud Services, you can do it pretty quickly. But building the org structure and the actual organization, as any entrepreneur knows, uh, is painfully incremental and linear. And so how, how we saw a new breed of organization and basically analyzed 200 of the fastest growing companies And said how are they doing this how are they how is ted scaling so fast using tedx or uber not hiring its own drivers or airbnb leveraging other people's assets and that's essentially where the exo model came from what's
0: interesting is even the examples that you mentioned their their organizations were they birthed in these 20 gutenberg moments or were they organizations that were legacy because i don't think well obviously not airbnb and uber and whatnot and ted i actually don't know when the inception point of ted was but Um, all the examples you're mentioning are companies that were sort of growing and going through awkward periods when all these technologies were available. So I feel like the people that were attracted to these organizations, even the leadership, they were a little bit more forward thinking. Now, when you look at the largest organizations in the world, they've been around for 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 plus years. Yeah. So when we look at the the people that are making moves and people that are disrupting, they are the Airbnbs and the Ubers and whatnot and the Netflix of the world. But have you seen and have you noticed with legacy organizations, them trying to adapt, trying to keep up? Or is this exponential thinking? Is it, is it too much for a legacy organization to properly implement because of the insane amount of layers, the insane
1: amount of right. bureaucracy? So, a uh, big question. Uh, there's a few different answers to that. For the most part, they can't figure this out. Right When we encountered, when we talked to the CEOs of a big company, be it Dow Chemical or Caterpillar or Credit Suisse, it took on average, they'd hear about these disruptions, and then it took them three years to actually do anything about it. Right, <laughs> So that's kind of the opportunity of that, the cost of that three years is kind of infinite insane. today. Yeah. yeah, like when a big bank first hears about blockchain, it literally takes them a three year because what will happen is they'll hear about these and go, holy crap, the CEO or C-suite fellow will go back to the home office, will sound like a raving lunatic. Right? They'll give him a, a white coat on medicine and ask him to stand in the corner while they do the important work. Eventually, he'll be go on enough that somebody will be sent out to Silicon Valley. They'll they'll go back and go, oh my God, this is crazy. They'll triangulate and go, okay, we need to set up an outpost over there. So they set up an outpost with people in Silicon Valley, and people get those people get excited. When they come back in, they sound like crazy people, so they get ignored. Then the CEO changes, and you start all over again. And that kind of pattern is just it takes a long time to turn a, a super tanker, mm-hmm. right? And then you turn the rudder and nothing happens for a while until the ship, uh, the ocean, it's that same type of analogy. We do see a complete shift with younger CEOs and younger entrepreneurs because they've grown up native to this environment and are doing things in this way. There's a great little story I have about this. When I, we were building on Singularity, we had, um, it was about six months in, the dean of one of the top two business schools in the world comes to visit. And he's like super annoyed. He's got a whole bunch of articles circled in newspapers about us. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? There's like $2 million of PR here. And I, I'm arguably the best business school in the world. I can't buy a newspaper, uh, an article in a newspaper. What are you doing? So we try and explain the model, da 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 going through it. And at some point he goes, well, you know, how big is your team? And there was like five of us. And I said, well, you know, it's us. And his mind broke. Like literally he was like, "Ah." Uh, he goes, my personal staff in my office is 12 people. You can't build a university with five people. And I'm like, well, we are. Yeah. And there's nothing special we're doing. We're using Google Docs for everything. We're multi- assigning multiple hats to multiple, just startup style. Yeah. He could not get his head around that. About about 10 minutes later, he goes, can we, can we go outside and play Frisbee? And the next two hours, he was just playing Frisbee outside. He, we literally broke his mind. And that really struck me. I was like, wait, th- like, that guy's running the biggest, biggest school in the world and cannot get his head around this. What hope is there for any of this? Right? And one more very quick follow up. About five years ago, I did a talk, a keynote, to the a conference of seven hundred deans of business schools. Who knew? But once a year, they all get together. The organizer excitedly announces me and says, "Hey, we're going to hear from Salim, latest in the EXO stuff." Except what he sees is complete blank looks from the audience, and he notices this and goes, "Ah, uh, he how many of you have heard of EXO?" And out of seven hundred deans of business schools, like two put up their hands. Now. If you're a car designer, you may or may not like Tesla, but you should goddamn know that it's you there. You oh know my, what it like, is. <laughs> and they have no idea that this new paradigm exists. It, just, it was just unbelievable because every business school in the world teaches you how to build a 20th century organization. There's simply no business school in the world that can teach you how to build Uber.
0: So what's the, what's the lever you have to pull, in your opinion? Do you think it's to, to convince those deans or to educate those deans, or do you think it's to go into the largest organizations in the world and you're going to have a trickle down effect into the business schools?
1: Uh, no, uh, I don't think you can fix it because uh, academia has the worst immune system in the world. More um,
0: so than like Fortune 500. Fortune. Way, way
1: worse. I think it goes like uh, big companies uh, is a bad immune system. Our institutions like education and journalism and uh, healthcare have their own immune system. Then you have academia, which has its own immune system. And they're probably the worst is religion. Yeah. where they'll, they'll like kill you if you don't follow the religion, right? Like it's rather dramatic. So I kind of grade immune systems at that level. And we've got a great slide that was put together by Ria Shah, the head of global learning at Ernst & Young, showing here is 60 things that you'll hear that indicate an immune system response. We can't do it. It's not a priority. Uh, we are not set up for this. It'll never work. Uh, all of the normal hundreds of reasons to say no to something. Yeah. Right? And there's ways of beating this, and we have found ways that big companies can adapt. But it's very rare to see overall. We're pushing the envelope, and we've got a methodology now to transform big companies. Uh, but most actually don't believe it because they just can't see how you get there.
0: So, what is the what is the result that you're trying to achieve with Singularity? Like, if you said, for example, you're talking to a big company, like yeah. And I would say, before we go down that rabbit hole and see how we can actually uh, build the company that we should be building, yeah um are are there companies that do it is like an IBM
1: yeah so we so I'll give you a great data point when we ra- launched the book we um we scored the fortune 100 yeah. on this model we said okay to what extent does IBM use lean startup thinking to what extent is GE purpose driven or not? to what extent is Proctor and Gamble has has decentralized decision making and we scored them because we have a survey a diagnostic that that scores a big company and I did a segment on CNBC squawk box and published this index here are the Fortune 100 ranked by the flexibility, agility, scalability of their org structures. Um, and it was a nice little marketing thing. We just finished a seven-year trailing analysis of that index. <laughs> and the numbers are unbelievable. So you're comparing, we're comparing the top 10 most flexible, agile, scalable of the Fortune 100 compared to the least flexible, mm-hmm. in our opinion. We tracked them over seven years. The top 10 outperformed the bottom 10 by like 3x on revenue growth. 6.4 times on profitability, 11 times on for return on equity, but shareholder returns, which is compound annual growth rate, mm-hmm. top 10 beat the bottom 10 by 40x over seven years. Wow. Like you can't make this up, right? And we actually did an R-squared analysis to make sure this was statistically real. So because the, the umbrella thesis is pretty simple. As the, as the external world becomes more volatile, your ability to adapt is going to drive market value. So, and now we can prove it like six ways to Sunday. So the big challenge now becomes, how do you take a big company and make it more agile? And we have some good indicators and some good precedents. Um, uh, Larry Page from Google came to me a few years ago and said, hey, your unit at Yahoo is early successful. Should I build an incubator at Google? I said, don't. You'll have the same immune system response. But do something like it. Keep its stealth pointed into adjacent areas. And you see the result is Google X where they have their core information processing capability in the mothership, and they use hardware, Google Car, Google Glass, contact lenses, to go into adjacent areas, right? The master of this technique is Apple. Uh, obviously, hyper successful company. Uh, they're, yes, they have a great design capability. Yes, they have a great technology supply chain. I will argue that Apple's core innovation is organizational because what they do, unlike anybody else in the world, is it will form a small team that's really disruptive. They will take that team to the edge of the company. They will keep them secret and stealth. And they will say to that team, go disrupt another industry. And right? and when you
0: say secret and stealth, like, what does that actually so
1: like the main com- the mothership does not know what's happening. Like Steve Jobs, when you put the Mac team really? away in a separate And they building. and they
0: give them their funding and their budget and they just say do whatever you want. And no, no, no.
1: They okay. may say they'll give they'll give them direction. Okay. Go go disrupt payments. but or, so okay. here's how Apple works. They have a portfolio of teams investigating the future of cars. Payments, retail, watches, uh, 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 whatever, education, you name it. And when they think an industry or product area is ready for disruption, they go into it and disrupt it. And then they iterate their product very aggressively. Um, not only does nobody else do this, nobody's even noticed that this is all they do. Right? So when they think something's ready for disruption, they go, in. there's no limit to their market cap. Of course. Uh, when they hit a trillion dollars, I was the first person to say they will hit a $2 trillion market cap. Just because they can just keep going to industry after industry using this model, when something works, they fold it back into the mothership, uh, into the back into the iTunes platform. When it doesn't, nobody knows about it. No, nobody knows about it, or they'll fail it elegantly, etc. But it gives them; uh, it, they're essentially an incubator of breakthrough ideas with the platform of design and technology as key strength. But the key innovation is organizational. Right? Now, other teams, other companies are learning how to do this. IBM, Microsoft has done an unbelievable job of switching from a product sale to a subscription model with Microsoft Office. Just, just unbelievable. I think such an adela would get like a Nobel Prize in business for doing this. Uh, there have been two times in history that we could track where this worked. Uh, and those two examples were IBM and Apple in the 90s and so on, only when they were, had a quarter or two left of cash and they had absolute charismatic leader in Luke Gerstner or Steve Jobs, mm. No other company in deep trouble has ever managed to make it. So you need a bunch of f- f- uh, questions. We've been focusing on a tool set to transform legacy organizations and we've cracked it, it's working. Uh, but getting a big organization to, they have to first realize they're in trouble, B, believe that the, the path through it, that actually then actually take on that path it's like a patient who first hears they have cancer they don't want and they they like they don't want to know right and they're not set up to know and you have to kind of wake them up and shock them etc etc
0: um i want to unpack what that toolkit is because that's very interesting but i also want to understand uh going back to that apple model when they and i'm sure that some of this plays into the toolkit as well but the people so when you build out these uh these teams that are separate from the mothership and they're doing their thing and they're investigating and they're trying to disrupt yeah. Um, what's, the, what's the person that you're hiring for for this particular role? Because I, wanna, I want to figure out that person so that somebody listening to this is like, if I want to build a company now, yeah, I need to be looking for these attributes or
1: these traits. Sure. So if you're hiring for, so the key concept here is you do not do disruptive innovation in the mothership. You do it at the edge of the organization pointing into adjacent spaces. Okay? Really important. Um, now, how do you hire for that? There's two ways. If you're hiring from inside, then every company has about 5% of people that are totally nuts, super smart, very loyal, but super hard to manage. And you never know where you're going to fire them or they're going to quit anyway. Those are the ones, grab them, put them at the edge and go say, go this way, right? Go and build an EXO off the edge of the company. Uh, The best corporate analog we have is Nestle spinning off Nespresso. For about three years, Nestle ran Nespresso's line of business, it was just a mess, it didn't go anywhere. It doesn't fit inside the corporate structure of food processing, et cetera. <coughs> Excuse me. You finally set it on the edge, separate, independent, boom, multi-billion dollar line of business, right? And so that's the key formulas. Put it at the edge into adjacent spaces. Uh, if you're setting up a new co at the edge, then you ideally want to hire from the outside because anybody from the inside that has any depth of experience will be useless for mm-hmm. the future anyway. You need somebody as young as possible and as crazy as possible.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the formula. So now those are the right people for that. But when yeah. you're when you're going into an organization, what's the formula and what's the strategy that you found works?
1: So we, you need to do three things. Number one is, uh, we have come up with a 10 week sprint that we have now open sourced, uh, that hacks culture at scale in a legacy organization. We found that's absolutely critical. And what that means is, so the, the, you know, if you look at the Fortune 100 data, it's pretty clear that we've stumbled across the organizational model for the next 10 years. By the end of this decade, every organization in the world, be it a big company, a startup, a nonprofit, an impact project, even a government department, will be organized in this way because it's just better. Um, so uh, the number one thing is to uh, hack the mothership and change the culture to be more acceptable of this innovation at the edge, like Apple has done. So Apple's employees know there's crazy stuff happening at the edge, mm-hmm. and they are just wait until there's a reveal and they get to know what it is. If you tell them too early, they'll instinctively try and fight it, okay? Um. Uh, like for example, at Yahoo, one of the challenges I had with my incubator is the company kept publishing what I was doing. And all the other teams at Yahoo were like, hey, we're doing that. Why does he get to do that? Da-da-da-da-da. And just sets up a horrible internal politics. Have to keep it stealth. Uh, The second is do disruptive things away from from the core organization. If uh, incremental innovation is best at the core, disruptive innovation at the edge. And so we've created a 10-week process called an EXO Sprint that hacks culture at scale in a big company. We piloted it with Procter & Gamble. Uh, We've now done it 60 times with big companies Average return on investment is like seventy times running mm. for running because the the juices up the internal metabolism of the company and and allows them to accept disruptive innovation so that cultural tolerance now sits so that if something somebody does something wacky at the edge they don't shut it down by default they kind of go wow that's interesting and they let and that it permeates happen. every level of the organization we found that it does and yeah. I can describe why it works and how it works if you want um, but we found we found a way of hacking culture at scale in a legacy organization. And 60 times in, we're pretty good that it's a true cookie-cutter process. We published a second book called Exponential Transformation, which is literally a handbook on how do you do it, how do you form the teams, what weekly assignments you give them. And it's a 10-week elapsed process. And the key metric we found is that we're able to move leadership, culture, management thinking three years ahead in that 10 weeks. Uh, So that's pretty cool. Um, We found that when somebody had a great idea inside a company, beforehand they might get funded five or 10% of the time. After you run this process, they're getting funded 95% of the time because the company culturally knows now that disruptive stuff at the end needs to be embraced and not shut down.
0: So it, it makes sense to me that, um, so I, I'm I'm curious as to how this works because if you move the leadership along, that makes sense. But I feel like in a, especially in a Fortune 500, if you've ever worked in one or worked with one, Tons. I mean, um, the the issue is not always the leadership either. No, like it's, it's never it's it's all the mid-market, every, mid market every middle middle level management, yeah, You yeah. do not want to change it doesn't for thirty years.
1: yes, so I'll tell you how it works. how we do it. what we do is uh, we work in 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 p and g we work with a division that was seven thousand people okay. pretty big division yeah, okay. Norms, yeah. um uh, uh. in fact, it was shared services, which is the back end i t provisioning so that's pretty conservative the law, yeah. et cetera. so we the, we work with them, and what we do is we get the top 10% of senior management into a workshop at the beginning, um, the top two layers of senior management, and we do a singularity style, shock and all, blow your mind workshop, which is meant to freak them out, the completely, hey, here's the future, and it's going to mess with you. For example, a huge amount of R&D at P&G goes into what shape should the shampoo bottle be to be attractive to for a potential shopper, or what color should the Pampers box be, right? to be attractive. Well, my wife has a diaper subscription to Amazon and doesn't care about the box anymore. Do you realize this and you're about to be disrupted around this? So the subscription type models are completely disrupting the traditional merchandising model, um, et cetera. Just on a totally wacky idea, there's a biotech breakthrough where you're gonna spray certain bacteria into your armpits and you never need to use soap again because the soap actually takes off a lot of the good bacteria that sits on your skin it's not great for you. So you just use the spray and you never need deodorant and you never need soap. Well, that's kind of disruptive. And do you know about this? At least track it, right? Or Soylent, yeah. uh, which is totally nuts, et cetera. So we kind of give them that. Then we kind of leave them alone because the legacy management is not set up for the future thinking. What we do is take 25 young leaders, future lieutenants of the business, and they actually do the work. So it's a kind of a coaching model. And they divide it into four teams. Two teams that sit at the edge of the company going, what crazy idea can we launch to to blow this company open 10x. The second two teams sit inside the mothership and think about what would I do to uh, change the mothership, which of the EXO attributes would I implement internally? They do two five week innovation cycles, they report at the end, and we've pre-allocated a half a million in idea. If senior management likes the ideas, they fund them. Now, what happens is the reason it works is when we've kind of shown the senior management the future. When the new ideas come they don't attack them so that's number one number two when those young leaders go back to their day jobs after the 10 weeks is over which takes about 30 percent of their time during the 10 weeks it's not full time because you it's hard to do that but it takes you know somewhere about a third of their time when they go back to their day jobs they infect everybody else with this thinking so we're essentially introducing a viral meme into a company and the best summary of what we've learned how to do in the same way that, say, Tony Robbins or Landmark Education or Neuro Linguistic Programming is able to make a subconscious state change in an individual, we've learned how to do that at an organizational level. And after 60 times, we're pretty good at it.
0: Okay, so that makes sense to me. Um, just before we keep going, I just want to actually touch or ask a question about when, when these companies create these, um, these little units at the edge and they're innovating and disrupting. Uh, I'm going to figure out the rest of the strategy as well. But is is it not easier just to buy companies and 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 put them at the edge?
1: You could, um, but the problem is the company can't resist getting its sticky little fingers on it.
0: So I've experienced this before too. Of course you have. So, yeah. so my last company was acquired by a, a large company, and we were supposed to be one of these disruptive units. Yes. And then an enterprise team um, started developing a product that was competing directly with ours trying to take it to market and we were fighting for resources and then neither product actually worked out. Yeah. So I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know, and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. That, I, it's so interesting because I've seen a lot of companies try and acquire and like create these little innovation labs within their yeah. own organizations. But I've seen firsthand, I've experienced it not working because of everything you just mentioned. It,
1: it never, ever, 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 ever works. I've, I've never seen disruptive innovation occur in the, in the mothership. Coca-Cola a few years ago did something really amazing. They said, we're going to do disruptive innovation transparently in the mother organization. I was like, "Wow, that's super courageous." Let, failed miserably, but at least they tried. Mm-hmm. Right? The only way I've seen it work is is the Apple model: put it, take your crazy people to the edge, keep them stealth, tell the rest of the company, "We're not telling you what's out there," but when we disrupt, when we launch it, it's going to be really freaking cool. Yeah. Right. And then launch it off the edge. So that requires a different form of leadership than all this. The the, um, the consensus driven leadership that exists in both most big companies doesn't apply to this model. So you have to operate in a totally different way. And a large company, here's the simple reason why. Every large organization in the world is geared for efficiency and optimized for um, predictability. They want to deliver the same bar of soap in a million locations if you're a Unilever. And when you come in from the side, it's like a Roman army marching along in a phalanx formation with shields and spears yeah. and chunking along. You come in from the side, it doesn't matter how nice you are, you're going to get speared. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and what you experienced is you bring in this different animal and the company can handle it. And I can give a couple of great little anecdotes because I've seen this before in telcos and banks and stuff. But I joined Yahoo. And um, I, I extracted five promises from Jerry Yang and senior management to join. I want to be off-site. I want to be able to go off-brand. I want to be free of HR and legal rules. I want to be able to build on my own technology stack, not bound by the corporate stuff. Ruby on Rails, we should be able to because we're trying to be a startup-type structure. And the last one was, I wanted to be able to give equity and an idea to somebody who had a great idea. Otherwise they could just do a startup, especially in Silicon Valley. We got all sign off on all of these. Within two months, all five shredded beyond any possible recognition that they ever existed. I go to these, the, the HR people and I go, hey, I want to give stock options to somebody who has a great idea. And they're like, we can't do that. We're a public company with a regulated stock option plan. No freaking way. I'm like, but I got signed up from Jerry Yang. And they go, yeah, you tell Jerry to come down and run the stock option plan and deal with the regulators. No, we're not doing it. I'm like, b- b- d- b- d-. Yeah. and li- li- there's literally rippled across all of these and it was gone. Um, uh, my favorite one was about, uh, I did get a separate office away from the mothership, but about I'm sitting in the empty office with my developers and about uh, a couple of days in the doorbell rings. Um, go outside, there's a huge furniture truck. And the guy's, I'm here to deliver the furniture. I'm like, what for We didn't order any. He goes, I'm from facilities and I'm here to deliver the furniture. We open up the back and it's literally full of cubicles and corporate oh colored God. couches. It's like yeah. Dilbert hell. And my guys are like, uh, <laughs> the hell with that. If that comes in, we're out of here. Yeah. We want ping pong table and foosballs and beanbags. Not right? this shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, So the guy's like, hey, my KPI is to deliver and furnish a new office within 48 hours of it opening. And I'm coming in. Yeah. I'm like, uh, uh, so I'm like, okay, hold on a second. I, I'm on the phone with his boss and his boss's boss. I'm on the phone with my boss and my boss's boss. It takes half a day. Finally, I'm able to get rid of the guy who's grumbling. He doesn't want his bonus dinged. Yeah. He actually did show up, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, phew, that was like, you know, t- close. But we managed to get rid of him. My guys didn't quit in protest and all, all good. But it shows you. And it you, shows you, what? you You know what this is like. Every yeah. Everybody in a big company knows this story a thousand times over. Okay, here's the crazy part. Two weeks later. Doorbell rings, same guy, same truck, same furniture. And I'm like, dude, I thought we went through this. He goes, yeah, except my manager changed. Notice you didn't have the tick box and I'm now ordered to bring the furniture and I have to start all over again, right? Now what's key here, (laughs) what's really key here is he's not being a bad guy. No, He's just doing what his KPIs and his job description, uh, the efficiency of the company operating on a certain metabolism is geared to do that thing. When you try and do something radically different, it can't cope. It just can't cope, it'll spit it out. And so either one of two things happens with a disruptive idea in a big company. Either it gets diluted so much that all the disruptive elements are gone and you can't, it's vanilla and, and mother mother's milk at that point and apple hood and mother pie and it's just part of the big company or it gets spit out and rejected and you lose it either way. One of the two things happens, large organizations cannot handle this. Governments handle it even worse. Right? institutions have to handle it even worse. And this is the nature of the world that we have to solve. If we don't solve that, we're, we're going to break the world.
0: Why do you think we're going to break the world? What does that mean?
1: Well, all the institutions by which we run the world were set up in the Middle Ages. Understood. right? Okay. E.O. Wilson, the noted biologist, said, um, we, are, we have Paleolithic emotions, we have medieval institutions, and we have godlike technology. And there's a big impedance mismatch between those three. Of course, uh, A simple example is uh, you. education was set up a few hundred years ago, designed to take a young child, train them through the early 20s to be ready for the existing job market. Well, the world is changing so fast, we have no idea what a job looks like in five years. What are we teaching them? And you try and update education and watch the fun, watch the immune system react. You'll get viciously butchered uh, by the existing system. Teachers unions book publishers regulatory people etc cetera, etc cetera. they can't cope and it's the same in every major institution journalism the business model is broken democracy is even breaking because the metabolism of a democracy was set up at a time when information moved really slowly and was very scarce if you were in washington dc you had no idea what was happening in california the speed of a horse was as fast. So we had Congress meets occasionally to give people time to literally ride across the country and say, here's what my people are thinking. And so you could design a structure where things changed over like decades. And slowly you bring the population along, make broad changes like women's rights or abolishing slavery or civil rights movements or whatever. Well, the world is changing every few months right now. We don't have time for that. We have an abundance of information gets misused, misinterpreted, faked, and the metabolism of democracy does not work with the speed of change in the world today. So every major democracy in the world is broken. I'm from India originally, broken. Brazil broken. The UK broke three years ago. U.S. breaking in front of our eyes right now. Right. So this is a this is true. I've not been able to find a single institution. There's about 50 major institutions like healthcare systems, legal systems. I've not been able to find a single one that survives this in the same way that I don't believe a single big operating company will survive this future.
0: That's very bleak. Uh,
1: That's no, very no, no, no. You have to, you, you have you can look at it bleak. I'm not saying up. that
0: it's incorrect. I'm just saying that it, well, all I'm thinking in my head is how are you going to go into the US government and change the
1: way that their you, organization works? You, you don't, you don't do it that way. Okay. What you do, so uh, uh, let me address the bleak question versus because it looks, you, we always relate to that as the loss of an old structure is bad, okay? What you remember have to remember is on the other side of that disruption is massive opportunity, just unbelievable opportunity. And what's happening in the world at the highest like metaphysical level is we're going through a transformation and an inflection point of running the world from scarcity to running the world to, from abundance. Our entire history like take business for ten thousand years if you didn't have scarcity you didn't have a business and exos are actually the inflection point for the first time in history of people finding business models around abundance airbnb is tapping into an abundance of extra bedrooms lying around uber an extra bunch of extra cars lying around ways extra gps capacity whatever and we're finding business models around abundance so that's this inflection point happening but Almost every government policy is based on scarcity. Every industry is based on scarcity. Uh, energy, which has been scarce for the entirety of human history, is about to become abundant. And we can't cope, basically. So we need to update all of our things. But the future is incredibly magical. We just have to figure out how to get
0: there. Um, so let's talk about the last two, last two uh, levers that you pull in organizations. Because we yeah. talked about the culture and then... I think that was like the main, that was the first piece. Yeah, so
1: there's three pieces you yeah. do to for, to transfer. Number one, we offer free training on the EXO model yeah. called EXO Foundations. We we basically say to the companies, have all your employees go through this two, three-hour video training, and that gives, lays the vocabulary down, okay? Number two, run a sprint to change the culture and allow disruptive innovation to occur culturally in the organization. That's number two. And the third is you take your crazy people to the edge and spin off crazy ideas off the edge. Those three, are done in, in sequence, will solve the big company and turn the metabolism around. And as I said, we've done it 60 times. It's, we've now got a very and tried and true so,
0: so talk to me about all these Gutenberg moments and all the technology that we're seeing. So where does that play into what you're doing with that's organizations? the
1: That's the trigger point that's driving this disruption. Okay, so just take, let's use autonomous cars. Google comes out with the autonomous car in two thousand and eight, um, and the entire car industry looks at that and says, "Ah, cute research project." Yeah. It's like two hundred thousand dollars a car for all the sensors and GPS and lidar and radar and all that stuff. No way you're commercializing that. Two years later, it's hundred thousand dollars a car. Two years later, it's fifty thousand dollars a car because it's dropping exponentially. And the entire car industry still goes, "Ah, fifty k. Who's going to spend fifty k for all the sensors?" then it drops from 50 to 25 to 12 to 6 to 3. It is now below $1,000 a car for all of the sensors to do an autonomous car and now everybody's freaking out, right? The ones that jumped on it early, Waymo, Elon Musk, are way 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 ahead of the market now to a extent that it's going to be very hard for the market to catch up. That's the that's the uh that's happening in industry after industry, be it healthcare, be it education, be it whatever. Education systems, all our universities or education systems are push-based. Get a bunch of kids in a classroom, try and cram algebra into them. Right? They're mostly thinking about lunch. Uh, just the simplest idea, how much of your university degree did you really work, use when you got into the workplace? And the answer is like near zero, okay? What we're moving to subconsciously without realizing it is a pull-based learning model. When you take on a new job or a role, you pull down the t- skills needed to run that uh, function and do that function and that's how we'll be running the world going forward well that's very different from our old push based systems and how do we deal with that so those are the kinds of tensions that are occurring in this massive inflection point the 20 gutenberg moments are the are the tsunami that's washing away these old structures and forcing us to do things in a new way um okay
0: so then i i then i want to go back to the point you made about there's huge opportunity Yes. So what does that opportunity look like? Because when I th- when you originally said we're going to break things, or things are breaking, democracy is breaking, and you look at all the other, uh, all the other countries in the world where democracy has broke to some extent, yeah, I don't see today in twenty twenty two a net positive because of that. Yet. So what? So how do we? Okay, yeah. So, got that.
1: So so let's follow the model. Yeah. Existing system, uh, you it's starting to break and then you see uh, an innovation at the edge, okay? What happens, you don't try and bring the innovation into the middle, you let that become the new gravity center over time. And let me give you an example. Our monetary systems are breaking. The reason is we created a debt-based structure, we floated off the gold standard in the 70s, and we grew the economy with debt, okay? um, And that structure for, didn't realize that technology was deflationary, because up to the entire history of humanity, Advanced technologies cost more. So you could grow the economy with a debt-based environment. Well, since Moore's Law showed up, uh, advanced technologies cost less because you apply computation and become, solar panels become cheaper. Your TV is is twice as functional. A year later, your MacBook is twice as functional. And that blows the, the debt-based monetary system. Now the only option is to print more money to keep up. That increases the debt. So now you're in a spiral. Yeah. Okay how do you break that you can't break it from inside the system uh, uh, right at the 2009 crisis bitcoin appears bitcoin is the innovation at the edge that operates a true uh, regulatory free uh, monetary system that's deflationary okay uh, and nobody can hack it nobody can control it now people will try they can't etc jeff booth who's for me the the chief economist of the abundance age um, uh, uh, head, head of YPO of Vancouver, yeah. wrote this book called The Price of Tomorrow. And he said, what Bitcoin gives you is money velocity without debt. All our economies and monetary systems gave you money velocity by increasing debt. And now we have money velocity without debt. And that's the new model. It will shift to that over time. It's inevitable. Now, you, you can go elegantly. You can go kicking and screaming, but you will go because the existing system can't sustain.
0: So that's what you see in various countries. So you see some countries that are uh, banning it while El Salvador is adopting, adopting it, it, embracing it. You see some countries. It's interesting when you mention uh, you know, the the response, because like the immune response to it, because it's- Talk it's, to any
1: banker yeah. about Bitcoin and watch them get hives, right? They're and just, now you have uh, people doing like their own digital currency. Exactly. So because we have for the first to, time yeah. innovation in, in currencies, which we haven't had for hundreds and thousands of years. Right? Or, it's all, or if you did, it was always state- state backed innovation. Now it goes to the individual. So everybody's like, I can launch blockchain, let's go for it. Now they may not all work, but at least you have innovation there. We have right now a Cambrian explosion. Uh, I think when I looked at Coinbase, uh, sorry, CoinMarketCap, there are 19,100 tokens listed on there. So all of them doing fascinating innovation in different ways and when you when you think
0: cuz i i look at this and i see some companies that are are building like like these 19,000 companies or the airbnbs or the ubers but when you look at um disrupting a, a government what's the time frame on that because you st- like is it in our lifetime or not because when i look at like okay so we're trying to move towards decentralized currency and that's going to be the the best possible solution for society you can't even have someone's grandmother who can purchase it right now without help. It's Agreed. getting there, but we're not there yet. No, so. no,
1: I can't even. I've been navigating this NFT world and these Discord channels, et cetera, right. et cetera. I, I'm still trying to get my head around a smart contract. It's a very, very different. There's some bylaw. You have to be under 25 years old to use the blockchain. Right. So that's an issue. That's a huge issue. Uh, but here's what happens. We look at a bunch of different things that lead to disruption. Peter calls them the six Ds. You digitize is very disruptive for a while, deceptive, then it becomes disruptive, then it dematerializes, democratizes, et cetera. And you have this curve. The key to going from deceptive to disruptive and really making a big difference in what happens turns out to be usability. So Steve Jobs made the smartphone usable. Those old Nokia's were not that they were clunky. They weren't that he made it usable. Boom. We had exponential disruption. Um, Bitcoin is not quite usable yet. Coinbase has allowed you to purchase Bitcoin but not do much else with it. Um, these other blockchains are trying for this. Somebody at some point will crack the usability and when they do, then things take off in a massive way.
0: I just find it interesting because if you have regulatory come down on this, like even if we think of things that were, uh, like like marijuana, for example. Yeah. Like if, if, there's an, if there's some regulatory immune response to it or anti-immune response to it um, and they put it into law, yeah. then you're, you're stuck for 50 years. Are you not?
1: You are, but um, yes, you are. It's a huge issue, and what's happening is the, the they've tried to regulate these cryptocurrencies, but it turns out you can't. Um, and I'll give you a simple example. This is the this is the thing that tipped well, it talk over. Talk to me about
0: China, because China did that, and then yeah. you saw the miners move out of China. So. Sure,
1: but then you kill all innovation, right? You're basically centralized, top-down uh, autocracy, which and which, and, which they which are, is, which right? is, yeah. they are, and. Yeah. Now they're having to crack down mass more and more, and they'll have to keep cracking down more and more. No autocracy has ever succeeded. Now, no democracy has ever succeeded either, but as Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for everything else, right? At least you have some modicum of freedom, et cetera, et cetera. The challenge we have in the U.S. is that a democracy relies on an educated population, and the population is is not educated in terms of what's actually happening in the world, because again it brings us back to the information it does it breaks it it breaks it so now what's the future i think the future is micro democracies city states rather than nation states because we run nation states because they have they were successful because you could have um, lots of natural resources under one boundary you had critical mass in multiple industries and that big uh, thing just like a big company Uh, but now the future is if you look at the pandemic The most successful responders to the pandemics were small countries big countries were uniformly a mess okay russia china uh, india u.s brazil mess all the small countries because they have homogeneity move quickly they can get their populations to adapt people listen they have a higher trust levels boom hugely successful in little countries in the same way you don't need access to resources today if you have solar energy vertical farming you don't need a national grid you don't need centralized energy pipelines and, and supplies, chains, et cetera. So therefore, a city-state is, we think, is the future of, uh, of organizational model for society. And um, that's what we're saying. When, you think about, when I think about Trump or Brexit, it's not about left versus right. It's urban versus rural. Really, that's the, that's the fight
0: well it, it always is right that's the issue always and then is. you have like the coastal cities that the the left is pandering to and then middle america is wondering where the hell they're being you know yep. included in this and then it's no longer it's no longer political ideology it's just why are you focusing on people that aren't going to help me
1: yeah but here's the incredible point and this is why we tend to be so optimistic you throw in solar energy and um a water filter that can extract clean water out of the out of the air and healthcare that can be looked up on the internet and education that can be looked up on the internet. You can be self-sufficient anywhere. You don't need the centralized government in any way, shape, or form. So you can now really be self-sufficient. You're not dependent on this. There's a huge irony in that the red states take more from the central government than the blue states. Is (laughs) that true? Oh, yeah. (laughs) They get massively more benefits to the red states than the blue states. The blue states tend to be a tax uh, negative tax income they they get they give in more and they take it out less and the red states tend to to get more subsidies and give more give less Which is but ironic because it's supposed to be the other way around yeah that's <laughs> just the u.s in it's you know all of the magic of the i live in florida and miami these days and you know there's a whole phrase in the news called florida man right yeah florida man tries to kiss alligator yeah right like it's just yeah. there's, there's a level of in madness that maybe comes with the heat and humidity and people do just the most ridiculous things against their self-interest. We saw that with the masks and so on.
0: I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, as a leader, you're always on the lookout for more ways to arm yourself with knowledge, the books, the seminars, and most importantly, the podcasts that help you make the best possible decision for you, your company, your customers. Because when you know more, you can apply more and you can grow. With HubSpot's CRM platform, you can store, track, manage, and report on all the tasks and activities that make up your relationships with customers. With a bird's eye view over all your customer interactions, HubSpot empowers your decision making like never before, so you can give your business and your customers all the good you've got. Learn how to make your business grow better at HubSpot.com. Um, so let's let's talk about starting organizations. Yes. So you're... An entrepreneur you want to start something yeah what's your advice for somebody starting something is there a way that they should look at
1: absolutely so uh, before we go to that let me just finish one big thing about if if you apply this model in big organizations it really goddamn works i'll give you an easy example amazon uh has a policy inside amazon called uh the institutional yes because they realize the immune system problem in big companies they realize it's really easy to say no so they created a policy where if you have an idea inside Amazon, you come to me. I'm not allowed to say no. My default answer has to be yes to your idea. If I want to say no, I have to write a two-page thesis on why it's a bad idea and post it publicly on an internet for ridicule and shame. So they caused friction. They increased the friction of saying no, meaning it's much easier for me to go, yeah, c- yeah, go do it. You'll fail downstream. I don't believe in your idea, but go for it. Yeah, right. One of the results, is the attitude of this, you have to have, which is the attitude you have yeah. to have. Yeah which one of the results of this policy was Amazon Web Services. Nothing to do with their core strategy. Nobody could figure out how to say no to it. Now one of the most successful products of all time that delivers 75% of Amazon's profits just by stopping the immune system and mitigating it somewhat. I'll give you one last example that's very powerful in the corporate world. Marriott Hotels is worth about $50 billion today. If Marriott had launched TripAdvisor, Booking.com, Airbnb, their market cap would be two hundred and fifty billion dollars, five x higher. The use reason I use to say this is all of those ideas were inside Marriott, but the immune system didn't let them out. So for fear of cannibalizing the existing business, they leave five x market cap on the table. So just let that register for a bit. Okay. So that's why we're pretty clear. That you have to be organized in this way. So then, how do you start an EXO? Yeah, we have a very clear and very simple model for how to build, and it's now being followed by tens of thousands of entrepreneurs around the world. Number one, most importantly, what is your massive transformative purpose? What fundamental problem are you trying to solve? The founders of Waze are trying to solve traffic. Google's MTP is organize the world's information. Uber is everybody's private driver. It's a single statement that kind of encompasses, here's the challenge, here's what we're trying to solve, here's what we're about. Um, uh, uh, Paul Pullman at Unilever read the book, ordered every brand in Unilever to have an MTP. And after three, four years, the five most profitable brands are the ones that have adopted it the most. So we can see the model bite. Um, uh, What that does is gives you a clear statement to the outside world. Here's what we are about. Here's the fundamental problem that we're trying to solve. A community then appears around that. Google organizer, Uber as everybody's driver driver. uh,
0: Can you help me understand, for somebody who's listening to this, they're like, well, what's the difference? I've, I, I know I have to have a vision and a mission, and these are all things that I've heard other people say that I should have as a, as a founder.
1: What's the difference? The vision could be, I want to see a MacBook in everybody's home. Okay, that's the vision. It doesn't tell you what problem you're trying to solve. Understood. Okay. The MTP is think differently, right? Um, uh, Uber can say, we want to be in 5 million cars, have 5 million drivers, but that's the vision. But the problem they're trying to solve is everybody in the world should have a private driver. So it's a, it's the problem statement that you're getting attached to not the outcome solution. Understood. You get attached to the problem. Yeah, a okay. leading
0: indicator there that you have. To Boom.
1: <laughs> uh, MTP cure cancer. Yeah. Right? And it's not that I'm going to cure cancer. It's like I'm it's a call to action we are collectively going to cure cancer. Now, so that's number 1 and most important, every EXO we ever saw has an MTP. So simply we'll be hiring now in the future based on the organizational MTP and your MTP. A natural fit. We're starting to see that already. Especially the younger generation is very purpose driven, etc. Of course, once you hire hire them, you have to figure out how to manage them, which is a whole other podcast uh, episode <laughs> that is past my pay grade. But so number one, you do that, and then you join a uh, create community around that MTP or join existing communities. If my MTP is cure cancer, lots of existing communities I can tap into. That's step two. Now you're part of a a group, an ecosystem, a hive mind trying to go after that problem. Step three, find a founding team. Uh, we think four roles you need to have, a visionary, uh, a, a product guy, an engineer, and a, and a business guy. Those are the four, and they could be under over five people, four people, two people, could more multiple hats. But Those four roles have to be covered and you get a founding team excited about that MTP. Step four is what is the breakthrough idea or product or service you wanna to bring to market? This is really important because almost everybody in, in the history, when we're building a business, we go, wow, look at this Bluetooth technology. Let me see how I can push this out into the world. Okay, So they're trying to push system to succeed. They found a great technology. They think it solve lots of problems. Uh, EXOs tend to be problem-driven, and then you find a breakthrough solution that matches. And then you're agnostic. Like uh, Elon Musk, his MTPs go to Mars. And whatever it takes to get to Mars, that's the technology he'll use. He's not found, oh, we have 3D-printed rocket engines. Let's use these and get these out into the world. So it's problem-driven, very key. Um, and that breakthrough idea or your product or service that you bring to market has to be minimum 10x better than the status quo in the marketplace. Okay? If it's 10% better, the market will ignore it. If it's 10 times better, the market cannot ignore it. How do you How do you measure that? Um, give you an example. A typical combustion engine car has 2,000 moving parts in a drivetrain. The Tesla has seventeen. Boom. Um, my listings per employee at Airbnb uh, is a hundred times more than the the um, rooms per employee in Marriott. Uh, so there's a bunch of ways you can metrics you can apply per industry per vertical to decide. My healthcare, my cancer detection device can do cancer detection ten x better than a mammogram, et cetera. So there's easy metrics in a depending on the problem statement. Now you have your product and service, then you do your then you follow the lean startup methodology, MVP, uh, uh, lean startup canvas, business model canvas. Once you've got that going and you're iterating, then you add in the other exo attributes, dashboards, OKRs, uh lean startup thinking, um, decentralized org structures, eventually leading to DAOs, um, et cetera, et cetera, build uh, algorithms into the product, et cetera, and you finish the tick list. And then you keep running that. That and, model.
0: And like the most, the most critical thing in a startup, which is finding that PMF, is so much easier now because you haven't tied yourself to that one product. Exactly, that one product that you think is a good idea. That's right. You're just trying to solve the problem.
1: You want to solve the problem.
0: Very smart. Very smart. And 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 talking about companies that are doing this well, so as people can look to examples outside of like the big ones, but like like newer ones that are starting.
1: Um, there's almost every startup today is following this methodology one way or the other. Soylent is a great one. Yeah. Right. Um, um, solve nutrition. Not can I have a better food product. Uh, solve nutrition in some way, shape, or form. Uh the, the easy TED is a good one. Let, let me use TED as a little case study. I'll give you two case studies. Yeah. Ted is uh when uh, TED has been around for a while, thousand people a year are going to Monterey in California. Chris Anderson takes it over. He does three things, establishes an MTP, ideas worth spreading, right? Then he gives all puts all the TED talks on YouTube for free, leveraging rich media um then he allows anybody in the ted community to go create a tedx event and boom in 10 years he's created a global media brand Uh, nobody's ever created a global media brand uh, that fast before and his cost of doing this was near zero so you can take an established environment blow it open to a global level at near zero cost so that's a good example of an exo okay i'll give you a slightly more newer model there's a if you if i ask you used cars How would you disrupt the used car market? Um, It's not that obvious. You might have a better app. Maybe I can deliver the cars to somebody. Maybe I ensure the car that it's, give a better warranty so people have used cars. You have Carvana and a few other models that are popping up, okay? Chinese company called Guazi says, okay, we're going to attack the used car market. They show up at somebody who wants to sell a car. They take 250 data points, photo, video, audio. They'd have an audio of the engine. A machine learning algorithm listens to the engine perturbations and is able to detect if there's any issues with the engine by the sound. Pretty easy, over millions of engines, sounds, they can map, figure that out pretty quickly. And it gives them a real time on the spot price of that, what they what the engine thinks, the AI thinks the car is worth. If it's worth $10,000, I, f- I, sh- I offer you $9,000, 10% less. And that will go beef it up and try and settle up for $11,000. Okay, that's it, that's their model. Um, but that real time pricing is very attractive to the seller. The buyer also knows that they've got this. They've done all the research and, and due diligence, and they're not. The margin is not that higher. They're not trying to sell fifty percent more. Yeah. They're selling ten percent more. Uh, so the buyer goes, "I have good confidence in this. The company seven years old. They've captured eighty percent of the used car market in China. Wow, two so. two million cars a month. Okay, and I will suggest to you that anybody in the real world, anybody in the car used car industry." Cannot get their heads around that statistic. Well, because eighty percent market wrong. share in seven years, it's, which is insane, which is nuts.
0: absolutely nuts. But so the problem they were solving is friction. Yeah, it's, it's a friction problem that they solve for. I'm, well, I'm just trying to read into like why they captured eighty percent in seven years because everything they're doing is good, but eighty percent in seven years is absolutely insane.
1: It's it's, yeah. it's impossible. Yeah, right. People will say you're nuts You're never going to do that. This is an enormous challenge with EXOs because you get outcomes that people literally can't believe. So you can't tell people that you're going to do that because they won't believe it. An investor will look like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just look at, think about this. I did this thought experiment. Chris Anderson, if you would launch TEDx in a traditional way, you'd say, all right, we're going to do four TEDx events this month. The next month, we're going to do four more. We'll do eight. Following month, we'll do four more. We'll do 12. Maybe the following quarter, we'll do 20. And then 30 a month, then 50 a month. That's already crazy. 50 TEDx events a month, 100 a month, 200 a month okay, over our, a period of three, four years, we'll get to maybe 1,000 TEDx incredibly events expensive a, to do all a month, this. Yeah. et cetera. Now, who's yeah. going to do all this? Who's going to set it all up, et, yeah. et cetera? Now, if you told the team you're going to do, instead of what he did was here's the MTP, ideas were are spreading. Here's the rules on how you set up a TEDx event. You can go follow the rules, self-provision from the mothership, the signage and the rules, et cetera, off you go. In five years, they, they ran 20,000 TEDx events. Now, if you went to an investor and said, we're going to run $20,000, yeah. they will go, I'm sorry, you're nuts. If you told the employees on the team, you're going to run $20,000, they will quit. They'll just go, you're barking mad. I'm out of here. I don't need to deal with that kind of stress, right? So it's really tough because if you actually lay out the projections, you will lose everybody. Yeah. If you try and be reasonable, you'll leave so much on the table. And let me give you the best example of an EXO entrepreneur we have today, which is Elon Musk. His methodology is really, really simple. He looks at a technology that's growing exponentially. Solar energy, battery technology, neural implants, whatever. Where will that technology be in 10 years on a doubling pattern? And then let's build an EXO to intercept that curve over a 10-year period. That's it. Just rinse and repeat. So he builds a community-based environment around a Tesla, around SpaceX, etc. Because he has his MTP for all those. Looks that he's got an MTP. Go to Mars, yeah. solve energy, yeah. uh, solve uh, solar energy and solve neural links, whatever. Yeah. Um, so you set your MTP, you look at the technologies that are going to give you 10x uh, or doubling patterns over that period of time. Have the courage to go, okay, that's where it's going to be in 10 years. For example, when he launched the Tesla in 2010, battery prices were X. By the end of the decade, lithium ion batteries are 90% cheaper than 10 years ago. Okay. Now, the car industry, does not dare make that projection. okay? And no car executive will go, those batteries are gonna be 90% less. They can't get their heads around exponential thinking. So entrepreneurs today have all the advantages. Big companies have all the disadvantages.
0: The one thing that I thought you, you touched on a few times that was interesting that I've seen a lot of the things you're speaking about in real life. I've seen a lot of these companies uh, deploy like the XO model. Yeah. But the one thing that I haven't seen yet is DAOs and decentralized organizations. So that's a very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting idea. Yes. How does it work in practical? Because even, even Elons of the world are not DAOs.
1: Yes. So uh, DAOs are non-trivial. It's like a big co-op running on a blockchain. And co-ops have governance issues, right? The challenge with DAOs, the, the benefit is you can scale very, very fast. People. You set a set of rules. TEDx is essentially a DAO type structure. Somebody can self-select, agree to a set of rules, come in, take the kit, go build an go build a TEDx event on their own with very yeah. little. Is that permission. Not just a
0: franchise, though?
1: You could call it a franchise. A franchise, is an old model of doing this, um, and the DAO is similar. Uh, blockchain-based smart contracts yeah. govern the do the governance, etc. The challenges with DAOs are are exclusively have to do with governance. Nobody's ever seen, uh, those, um, Austin Hill, who runs Blockstream actually told, said it well for me. He said, think about a public company annual shareholders meeting yeah. with little grandmothers waving their chairs around, going, what the hell are you doing? And it's like, it's, it's a shit show, excuse yeah. my language. And now scale that to internet scale. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a DAO governance. Right, so that's very, that very, very is challenging. Very, scary very when challenging. When you're, trying to, you're so trying to actually build something. What you have to do is slowly migrate your community and do governance over time and bring them along with the journey. So they, you build more and more governance into the community. And uh, so we are building with the EXO, basically a decentralized McKinsey's where people can do consulting on the EXO model. They self-provision on training. They can go apply those tools to their local companies. We now have 17,000 consultants in 130 countries. You're starting Um, to apply this. And we're, Yeah. yeah. So now we've, we've been steadily moving for four years to try and become a DAO and it's taken us four years to get the community voting, the um, governance, somebody does, it. we have a bad actor in the community, what do we do with him? Yeah, It's not good for us to say, we look like the bad guy if we say the community should vote, what should we do with that person who's creating a competitive also thing? Because they're not used to it. They're, they're not used to it, yeah. it takes a long time to you. So you yeah. have to train them uh, into getting involved. You have to figure out the right, how many people should be on the governance committee to decide that. It's really, really, it's gonna take us a long time to work out the governance models for DAOs. It's, it's a non-trivial. Right now we've got the burst of irrational enthusiasm. Oh my God, everything great in the world would be DAOs. And it's like the peak of the hype, Gartner hype cycle, yeah. right? Uh, we'll go through the the chaos of the the un, uh, crazy expectations and people go, oh my God, this will never work. And then it'll just start happening as all technologies go through. But we're right now at the peak of hype cycle of DAOs. Um.
0: With everything that you've worked on with EXO with Singularity, what are the problems that you're trying to solve right now? So, what are you most focused on right now that you're concerned about? That's keeping you up at night? That you're seeing in organizations, or 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 is it just is it just the uh, you've just kept building out Singularity? You've kept deploying this in companies, and you're just trying to scale that effort up?
1: No, we've successfully applied EXO now in thousands of companies around the world. And people are. It self- works, and, and it's yeah, deployed well it, the, it uh, it's working, and people are taking up the model. Uh, for example, the Minister of Oceans in Mauritius called me up a couple of years ago and says, "Hey, I run my ministry on your book." I'm like, "Wow, that's you know, pretty like cool. crit- thing nuts. <laughs> Yeah. So we're we're starting to see the model bite in kind of ultra sort of fascinating and unexpected places, and the model is is just because it's better. Yeah. and and we and importantly, we didn't invent this, right? We analyzed two hundred companies of the fastest growing company, and just tagged what they were doing and created like a tick list for people. So there's no massive innovation. We just brought all of the attributes people are using into one place, so they can and given some prescriptive path as to how to apply these ideas. And people are following that model. So uh, so that's off to the races. What I'm fascinated by and most passionate about now is how do we transform society. Because we have to move society. Small. from Well, you, MTP, you have to <laughs> yeah, go big, right? Yeah. Uh, and so my, my MTP is to transform civilization. Um, and it actually came from something my dad said. Um, I do this late night talk on metaphysics, philosophy, and the meaning of life. It's what I'm known for at Singularity. I did it for every class. Every year we do this. Because you come across all these technologies. And you really ask the big questions. Synthetic biology, robotics, AI. What does it mean to be human? When I have a pig's heart inside me and all my organs are... My, my brain and memory are in my smartphone, et cetera, right? At what point am I non-human, human? What is the purpose of life? What's the future of longevity? You really start, is there a God? You really start asking big questions. We found the students couldn't, couldn't apply themselves. So in the middle of every class uh, duration, we would do a late night French salon, alcohol mandatory on metaphysics, philosophy, and the meaning of life. And it's led me to this level of thinking that systematically, systemically, we have to change the world. If you look at civilizations in the past, the Romans, the Incas, the Mayans, they got to very sophisticated societies. Then they had a boundary condition and they literally fell off a cliff. Suddenly collapsed. Every single one of them. No, no civilization has not gone through this process. You talk to the Yuval Hararis and the Neil Fergusons of the world, those conditions exist right now. So now how do we prevent that collapse? in in some systemic way and minimize the damage, the downside, not end up in several hundred years of the Dark Ages. We have two choices as humanity today, Mad Max or Star Trek. And our politicians are sending us straight down Mad Max. Um, But with all the technology abundance, we actually have the opportunity for a Star Trek world, and I'm interested in how do you make that pivot. So I did one of these late night sessions. My 90-year-old dad is at the session. Somebody goes, I really liked your talk, Fixing Civilization, where I talk about this immune system problem my dad's go, hand goes up. He goes, can I heckle? I'm like, uh, yeah, of course. He goes, totally disagree with your talk. I'm like, oh, do you, do, do you not think we need to fix civilization? He goes, yeah, of course we do. But that's not the problem. The problem is not the fixing part. The problem is the civilization part. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, and he goes we have not civilized the world. We've materialized the world. Now we have to do the work to civilize the world. And <laughs> i It's like wisdom of the elders, kaboom, right? And the whole audience, well, yep, yep, that's it. I lost all credibility. (laughs) And I was like, wow, he's right. We actually still have, you look at the political discourse in the world today or in the US or in England or in the Russia-Ukraine war. um, We are not, we are apes with more and more tools. We're apes with nuclear weapons. We actually have to do the work now civilizing ourselves. And I think uh, it starts with, this immune system problem, we get used to a particular pattern and we have to undo the old thinking and apply new thinking to embrace abundance of energy. Just that changes the world so fundamentally that none of our existing systems, institutions, business structures can deal with that simple fact. So we have to come up with new models, which is essentially how we think about this. The really great part is that Claire Christensen, with Innovator's Dilemma identified and created a, a valid theory for disruptive change and disruptive innovation. We've now developed a tool set for applying disruptive change prescriptively. So we can do that in companies first, which is the easy part. As we learn how to apply that to institutions and to government, then we can navigate cleanly through this future to ending up in a Star Trek world rather than a Mad Max world.
0: You think that the 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 ability to improve civilization or to civilize rather will be through large organization or is there a, a version well there's a version of what you're doing that has to be deployed for the individual not the organization so how do you do that
1: so i'll go back to my city versus state issue we think it'll operate at a city level we think people will self provision with these new tools and just go do it and over time that'll become the default model in the world so for example uh, Puerto Rico is deploying micro solar micro grids with solar energy, battery power. Philippines, the same thing. People are self-provisioning on these models. You look at, in the gaming world, Axie Infinity. Tens of thousands of families are pulling themselves out of poverty. It's the biggest, it's essentially wealth redistribution using a gamified environment. There's unbelievable reasons to be optimistic in the world. There's a really important part, a piece that Peter Diamandis identified in the book Abundance. In the back of our brains, we all have this little organ called an amygdala, and it's a, an evolutionary mechanism that we evolved in the plains of Africa. If, you're, if you hear a noise in the bushes, you run, because yeah. bad news can kill you. Good news does not kill you. Right? If I miss some good news, I might miss some fruit that I could eat. I might I miss uh, something like that. If I missed a piece of bad news, I could die. So we're actually 10 times more likely to pay attention to bad news versus good news because of the survival threat from when we evolved. Okay, um, This is why all you hear in the news is bad news because you pay attention to bad news. This is why Fox News does very well. If you watch Fox News, you're going to die this week. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky, you'll last till next week, but then you're going <laughs> to die next week. If you watch um, uh, a Peter called CNN, the Crisis News Network, when you can track every bank robbery in real time, high definition, streamed to 20 devices, you think the world is going to go to hell. And you vote based on that. Fear, and then you end up with Trump or Brexit or whatever. The world is actually in an infinitely better place than we have ever seen it. On all the data that you want to pick, any data you want to pick, we're infinitely better. Uh, longevity, life cycles, maternal mortality, infant mortality, cost of telecommunications, transportation are all thousands of times cheaper than they were a while ago. I'll give you the simple statistic. Two, there's a there's a cost of what do we mean by extreme poverty. It's on $2 a day of $2011. Dollars. If you get less than $2,000, that's called extreme poverty. So they use that parity equivalent across the ages. 200 years ago in 1894, um, 94%, so not 18, 1820, 200 years, 1820, 94% of the world lived in extreme poverty, less than $2 equivalent a day at the time. 94% of the population, That has dropped steadily over the decades. We're down below 10% today. We're about 8.9% right now. You don't hear that in the news. It's good news, doesn't sell. Bill Gates predicts we will eradicate extreme poverty in this decade. You will just not see this in the news. What you hear in the news is, oh my God, autonomous car killed somebody. And so we have to overcome the natural evolutionary thing of our amygdala. it's very difficult. I didn't say it was gonna be easy. If it was gonna be easy, people would have done it by now. But at least we have a really clear idea now of the problem space. We really understand the problem space. We don't understand the problem space, it's actually pretty easy. And the here's why I'm so optimistic. These new technologies, for the first time in human history, cost little, very little. Throughout history, advanced technologies always cost a lot. And only a big government or a corporate lab could afford to do RD, launch new products and services. But look at today, solar energy is cheap, sensors are cheap, the blockchain is open source and free. For the first time in human history, um, entrepreneurs with no money can radically innovate. Vitalik Buterin, 18 years old, ignores his professors, half a trillion dollar industry. I will suggest to you that no banker in the world can get his head around that. I can't get my head around that, right? How does an 18 year old create a half a trillion dollar ecosystem? That's just unbelievable. But that gives me unbelievable optimism because when you have thousands of entrepreneurs now innovating at low cost, magical things are going to happen and there's nothing anybody can do to stop it.
0: And you'll have more of that good that will permeate.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you this last data point, which is, okay, I can create a new innovation. Will I do good things with it or bad things with it? Right? So when Craigslist and eBay emerged, there was a really interesting question Will you have positive transactions or negative transactions? And for the first time, I can have an open system where I can do good or bad. I can easily on eBay post a picture of a MacBook. You send me a 1000 bucks, and I'm gone. Uh, I can post, I can mask my email address pretty easily. So anthropologists and sociologists have studied these systems. What's the actual ratio of fraudulent versus constructive transactions on an eBay Craigslist? They've studied these systems in quite detailed. Equally, I can do either... Turns out the actual ratio across all of these systems is something like 8,000 to one. So on eBay, there are 8,000 positive transactions to each fraudulent transaction. Uh, That should apply to the general population. So that means if you have something like drones, 8,000 people will do something positive with it, and one person will do something negative. Now that means that one person is really easy to spot. And B, given the 8,000, we should just let anybody do whatever we want to do with drones. Except our regulatory, based on fear, Says, oh my God, drones! You might use it for something bad. Ban all drones until we can slowly open that tap, and it's taking us a very long time to take advantage of these new technologies.
0: Um, I I would even want to go down the path of figuring out some of those uh, those high level esoteric conversations that you have in yeah. that group, but um, <laughs> I think that's like think that's a that's a whole different other... and, and that
1: requires some alcohol. Um, we can do yeah, that two two gin and tonic <laughs> minimal.
0: We can do that one time. All right. Um, okay, let's close this one off for now because we've gone through a lot of stuff. I just sure. want to give you the floor. Is there any other things that you want to bring up to highlight that sort of tie into the conversation that we have? And then I'll do a couple of rapid fire at the end to
1: sure. some last points. Well, I think we have a very clear prescriptive path for any company to turn itself into an EXO now. And it's largely as it's free as you want to make it. Free training on EXO, take the sprint and run it for yourself if you want. And we've laid out the methodology for people the companies that are using these processes are getting 70 times a return on investment from this effort from just the work of transformation so we and it's it's you know when we first started this conversation 10 years ago about what we have new York nobody believed me and we didn't under we didn't have any data points Tesla wasn't rampantly successful Uber and, and Airbnb were just getting started it was tough to say hey this, you, the world's getting disrupted big companies are like eh yeah we don't see it at all now it's a very easy conversation Much but more than we that we have a prescriptive path on how to transform and I think that's the unbelievable opportunity that's I tend to be this is why we're so excited about the future
0: Where do people go uh, website social all that um our website for is YouTube for you as well so to. my
1: website is solimasmail.com and you can search for me on youtube and 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 hear lots about me spouting on um, Our website for the platform in our community is openexo.com. And on there, we offer a free diagnostic where somebody could score their own company and see where they are. The training is free. We have to pay a charter, bit for the certification, because we have to do some work to certify, but the tr- video training is free. And we've open sourced in uh, the exponential transformation. How do you run the sprint? And actually, Peter uh, Diamandis and I are now co-authoring the second edition of the EXO book. Um, uh, that. and that's essentially going deep into the model. And saying what is an exponential organization what are the characteristics and how do you start one and that book is coming out in a few months we just finished that. the main writing for it i had to rewrite the whole damn thing after nfts and blockchain came out it's, because it's, it's com- quick things change <laughs> you look at you look at you take a community and you apply crypto economics and yeah. boom the results are on un- the engagement level is unbelievable
0: actually i i mean i didn't even mention this but when you mentioned uh figuring out your mtp and building a community around that that's what i that's what i found like if we look at all the most successful companies and projects at any stage, it's all about community building.
1: It completely. Look any, at all the successful yeah. blockchains. Yeah. Uh, community plus crypto economics. And now, now it
0: transcends blockchain too. Like it's completely, it could be a CPG company. It could be yeah. a service company. You can build community, which is, uh, that's like, everyone's like, okay, the c- buzzword is community, but how the hell do I do it? Well, you galvanize people around a cause.
1: Bingo, MTP. Yeah,
0: exactly. Okay, bringing it back to you. Yeah. Um, you've had an incredible career what was the biggest challenge that you've had in your own personal life or professional, but how did you overcome it? what did you learn from it?
1: Um, biggest challenge was I found that every three, four years, my career would just end in a disaster and I had to reinvent myself. And I used to look at that as negative and oh my God, my career just ended disaster. Um, and then I found that's actually a massive positive transformation because the next thing was always 10 times better than before. I joined Yahoo, super excited about hacking a big company, find I can't hack the big company, Microsoft tries to buy it, this is a nightmare, I leave, Singularity was 100x better. Uh, Singularity was unbelievable, The world's top thinkers, I'm interviewing them all on stage, moderating events for for years, I've got the world's kind of information in my hands and being able to transmit that to tens of thousands of students, incredible. Uh, The EXO book was 10 times better, because now we can say, Here's what you can do about it. And now we can give people some guidance and a prescriptive path to managing transformation. Um, That was unbelievable. But now we have a community of like a hive mind of 17,000 people that are the most incredibly inspiring people I've ever met. And I can ask a question in that community, what do we think about X? And I'll get this most unbelievable, like almost a doctoral thesis of, hey, here's why, here's what I disagree with. And we get this kind of di- dialogue and di- uh, dialectic discussion yeah. on some topic, autonomous cars, or what or do we think Elon muster by Twitter? And you just get this rich discussion that makes everybody 10X smarter.
0: And, and actually, just to follow up on that point, when you built out Singularity, um, How did you like? You had your MTP for Singularity, and I'm sure that's what helped you build the community around. But how did you how did you tap into these seventeen thousand people? When I don't think there's ever really been much done like what you're building before.
1: Um, so Singularity uh, did two things. So the main brainchild behind Singularity is Peter Diamandis. He had built International Space University, and he read X Prize as well. That's X Prize is Peter. I'm not on the board of XPRIZE because it's, a, it's actually worth touching on this. The reason these XPRIZE's work is when you put up a $10 million prize on space, it turns out about 30 teams will spend $150 million in R&D trying to win the $10 million. Wow! So it's the best leveraged innovation model ever found. And the collective innovation has created a $2 trillion space industry that didn't exist before. So you put up a $10 million prize and you launch a $2 trillion industry. That's unbelievable. Right. So if we're optimistic, and enthusiastic about the world, this is why we see these structures, we see the technology, we see these breakthroughs. So I joined the board a few years ago, and it's been fascinating to watch that community spread. This What happened with Singularity is when the idea was, can we train the world's leaders on the future? And the idea was, let's bring the young students, the 30 year olds are going to be running the world in the next 10 years and arm them with the future of technology and awareness of what's where will blockchain be in two, three, five, seven years? Where are these technologies intersecting? What are the tr- inflection points you should be tracking? And send them back to their home countries. And when they get to positions of power, they should be making better decisions than our horrible, crusty 80-year-old leadership today. Right? And that's now proving to be the case in countries around the world. Once we have the, the kind of platform of that thinking around the world, the prescriptive aspect of EXOs and how do you now organize for this, not just private sector, but public sector, becomes really powerful. Now we can transmit that layer, say, here's how you organize for this. And there's enough people around the world in different countries, like Minister of Oceans and (laughs) Mauritius. That's nuts, right? Um, And and, uh, get that out there. And now we can feed that platform, that EXO platform of incredibly bright people around the world with new ideas and say, hey, who wants this? Who wants that? Who needs what? Who needs what? And we're turning that into a DAO. And as we move towards kind of governance and things, it, it's just because it's easier. We don't have to manage it. It's a nightmare to manage it. Yeah, kind board, of a community. It's huge. Yeah, yeah, it's really in multiple languages. Yeah, and we speak forty-six languages. So this is a huge challenge building this ecosystem. I think we want to get to about a um, hundred thousand trained people in the community, and then I'll feel uh, comfortable that we've got enough critical mass to then attack institutional transformation, and that'll be the next layer around this. Understood.
0: Um, You've had a lot of people in your life, mentors in your life, people that have had huge impacts on you. If you had to pick one, who was it? Why is why is it that person, and what did they teach you?
1: I can't just pick one. I'll pick two. Pick two. Okay. okay. Uh, Peter DeMondis has to be one of them. Um, his uh, his incredible energy and ability to think at scale, think of the thing. He He's the one that's moved most of us from scarcity thinking to abundance thinking, right? And he's got this unbelievable, like when he runs into a problem, he just executes his way out of it. And that sheer gumption of just hacking away way through it. Like when you tried to launch XPRIZE, nobody would fund a prize, the financial system was crashing, and he just tacked away at it until it's sort of, until it got there. And there, So that's kind of an incredible awe-inspiring model. Um, the second I would say is uh, somebody who passed away recently, Lawrence Bloom, who was the, I think he was the first chairman of the World Economic Forum, has been thinking at a systemic change level of how is evolutionary consciousness changing? And he kind of showed me there was a whole large group of people that are thinking in this way, but they don't know the path to get there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's been incredibly inspiring to see that there's large groups of people who think about systems change. And we're providing the tool set and capability to to navigate and to support that group in changing the world. Um, And the final thing I would think is the, the younger generation today is unbelievably inspiring to me. They're really driven by, like, good things in the world. And I'm unbelievably optimistic about what's happening in the world in general. You see the unbelievable outpouring for help in Ukraine, et cetera. We can now transmit com- compassion around the world. And I think it's really exciting. There's so m- there's so easy to focus on the negative, but we forget to focus on the unbelievable positive nature. I'll give the smallest example. If you went back before, so people complain about all the damage cell phones are doing, et cetera. We have a 10-year-old child. If you were raising a kid 20 years ago and you had a babysitter coming, you have no idea. Is she going to be late? Is he going to be late? Are they going to get there on time? Uh, what if they're, if they're late? Are they actually coming? Or are they just late? So you end up with all the stress and worry about what's going on. Now you're texting back and forth. I'll be there. Th- I'll be six minutes late. Yeah. My bus is late, whatever. And you have infinite knowledge and you, can, you're, you get infinite more peace of mind because you have so much more data about the world. People forget that forget the unbelievable benefits from the magic of all the, the technology we have allowing us to video anywhere in the world for free with my son Connect with people everywhere yeah. it's just an un- the world is such an incredibly magical place we get super excited by the future uh and and try not to get trapped in the past so the younger generation lawrence blue and peter and and then my wife who holds the spiritual foundation you know i used to make a lot of money and then lose a lot of money Make a lot of money, lose them all. Do well, total yeah. mess up. Then I met my wife, and I would do well, not mess up. Do well, not mess up. <laughs> She's <laughs> like, she was this like foundation that stopped me from totally messing up. Then I'd go to the next thing, like, not mess up. And so that's been profound because the the depth of potential has just increased in me massively.
0: Incredible. If you had to pick a, a resource, a book, or something that's had a big impact on your life, what would you recommend people go check out?
1: Um, I do. I'd suggest two. One is the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance which laid down it kind of over books. over 1974. I laid out an overview of all the different philosophical schools of thought. Yeah. It was incredibly powerful, but more powerful was this the sequel to it called Leela published, I think in 95, he lays out, here's the metaphysics of how the world works. And that just blew my mind. So that would be one. The second would be the power of myth by Joseph Campbell, just laying out here's comparative mythology. We have the same myths in all of our different societies and What is human aspiration all about? And then the third would be uh, probably The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle that gives you a deep snapshot on how to be present and the importance of being present. Um, Those are all kind of fairly spiritual books. I have a degree in theoretical physics. So quantum mechanics I find fascinating. Oh, I've got a great little suggestion for your viewers. There's a 11-minute video on YouTube. It's called The Delayed Quantum Choice Experiment. Okay, if you ever think somebody is spouting on about quantum mechanics and thinks they know what they're talking about, go watch, go send them to this video called the Delayed Quantum Choice Experiment, and it just blows your mind. Okay, good. I'll, so, so there, I'll find it. I'll link it in goes. the show notes.
0: <laughs> it will be good. There you go. Um, uh, if you had to tell your twenty-year-old self one thing, what would
1: yeah. it be? Um, play full out. Just go play full out, and the hell with the consequences. Don't worry about what society thinks of you. And back then when I was growing up, there were a few role models to uh, to indicate how to live. And so I had to rely on fate chucking me around and beating me up until I got there. Today we have the Elon Musk, we have the Vitaliks, we have people doing radically crazy things and teaching the whole world. Pff, go nuts. You have one life live it.
0: Uh, and last question. Yeah. What does success mean to you?
1: Uh, success for me, I think, is, I, I like the the best definition of leadership I've ever seen is the opportunity to to serve the potential in people around you. And I think for us, for me, the success is creating a potential for every human being on the planet to live uh, fully.
0: costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story.